drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Welcome to the drawing room, a space for intimate and surprising conversations. I'm Andy Park. Does a player's uniform tell the history of the sport they played? Maybe it's the player who wore it whose history that reveals, or perhaps the activism the player engaged in whilst wearing that uniform. When we go to a museum and look through its collections, we have a chance to hear the stories of our past and maybe learn about the way the world works. But do you ever stop and think about who is telling those stories and how the changing perspective of the storyteller can completely reshape our understanding of an object and its place in history? A current exhibition, One by Four, plays uh, with those perspectives, applying four different stories to each object to give a wider view of history and an understanding of the role that curation plays. Julie Baird is the director of the Newcastle Museum and my guest tonight here in the drawing room. Welcome to you, Julie. Come on in and take a seat. Thank you so much. Let's just start with a, a big philosophical question, shall we? What is the purpose of a museum? Oh, that is a big philosophical question. And I think it depends on different people's reactions within. Um, A lot of people think that the role of a museum is to keep things. Uh, In England, certainly curators are called keepers. And it's that idea of the collection and the maintenance of that that core collection. I personally think that we are narrative storytellers and that the role of museums is almost what's expected – in a cycle, we tell the stories of elders to younger people and we carry on that cycle of history. But we also interpret and we have a great deal of power that everybody thinks museums and, and curators are nice, safe, non-biased spaces. But really with One Times Four, we were trying to expose some of that stuff. Because certainly the idea of a museum as a preservation place has become a a critical idea when we think about the uh, returning of certain Indigenous artefacts, this idea, the very Western tradition of keeping, as you mentioned, and preserving is now certainly an idea that's come under a lot of criticism. But the act of uh, curation itself, you, you mentioned that there is this interpretation and then also a reinterpretation as collections get dusted off and shown to a new kind of audience. What is at the heart of every curation, if you like? Well, curation really is a is a question of choice. And so that's why you see the word curation bandied around by what oranges they pick to put in, in a shop window. Curation is the choice where where someone says, I am going to tell this narrative story from this perspective. I'm going to use these words. I'm going to use these objects. And I'm going to spin together an exhibition that tells this story. And I think that, you know, in the, in the past, often it has been a singular story. Um, you will, might have one object used in different exhibitions, but this is the story and this is the truth. And, and certainly at the time that we were looking at one times four, it was during the Trump election in the States. And that idea of what is the truth and what is the story and how different people have different perspectives and different voices, really that's where that core essence of let's turn everything upside down came from in one times four. 
I suppose it must be implicit then when we use the word curation that we're also uh, covertly using the word omission because there is a choice that uh, is made by uh, the museum curator in this case. When did one times four begin? What was the idea that was the seed to, to germinate into the exhibition? And what are the questions that you wanted to raise in it? So, so the idea of multiple voices is one of the core philosophies at Newcastle Museum, and it's quite unusual. And that's the wonderful thing about working in the regions. You can do um, some really different and innovative work because uh, you almost have more space to create in the corners. And so we've been doing uh, multiple storytelling on single labels for single objects for a while, but the idea actually came from one of my audience engagement staff who, who sort of plonked in front of me in a desk and said, let's do an exhibition about telling multiple stories. And so really it started from there, the idea that we could take um, it's only 23 objects. Take 23 objects and then completely explode how we tell those stories. The problem was is you don't want a book on the walls. You know, nobody wants to be walking around, you know, with a, their child and their mum and having to go to the bathroom and reading a book on the wall. So really it was COVID and the concept of the QR code checking in everywhere that gave us the freedom to tell those multiple stories because we did it via a website on your phone. So when you went into this exhibition, you saw these beautiful objects and these beautiful surroundings, but the labels themselves you carried in your hand. And so that then spread out to audio labels. So the inclusion of um, vision impaired people to actually be able to get a full experience, people overseas who'd never stepped foot in a museum. And then that started to spread out. And then we went well, what if you don't want to read the stories or hear the stories that the curator has chosen for these particular objects? What if you just hear for a good time? So then we did a song for every object, um, you know, right down to, to telling uh, an Aboriginal jockey saddle story through the song Horses by Johnny Farnham. Uh, and then we went, but we're missing some of that deeper dive. So you know, we, we tell stories about the Mile Creek Massacre within that exhibition. This is a, a an exceptionally significant and powerful story that we don't want to make light of. So we decided to do links. So you can press on a link and you can go through to um, University of Newcastle's Aboriginal Massacre map of Australia. You can go through to other academic treatises about the Mile Creek Massacre. So really we're saying to people, however you choose to interpret these objects is okay. These are truths, but they're all different and they're all from different people's perspectives. It's and that's okay. It's certainly interesting to hear uh, the museum as uh, sort of asking questions rather than answering them in terms of one point of view or set of facts. Tell me about in the exhibition one times four, there's a pink child's dress. What stories can that dress tell? Well, that was that's one of my favourites. I'm an ex-textile curator, so I love that. So really when we were looking at it, we were looking at the different kinds of things. And one was a story about um, the actual 
person who wore it. Actual biographical story about this person and how every year they would get a special dress and they could they would go to their Easter at the Sunday. Then we started thinking about what other things and one of the things that came up was a story about gender and a story about the colour pink and what the colour pink means because I think if you talk to most people these days, they would associate pink with a female gender. And really that only came into place in the 1920s. They used to be that pink was for boys because it was a hot, aggressive color and boys were supposed to be hot and aggressive and blue was cool and calming and therefore what you would want in a girl child. And so all of a sudden that swap. So it really turns people's ideas of what is actually normal. Um, We assume that what we're living in right now is normal and it's the truth. And the past is, um, you know, this unusual place and the future is unknown. But really once you see that, that you know, things that you take as normal, like pink is for girls, is actually a created thing, then it starts questioning all sorts of other things. So, so elements that you thought were normal, now you start thinking. And I think museums are the best places to start questions. Often we don't have enough space, we don't have enough time to answer every question. We're not going to be the be all end all for all information. But what we're going to do is make you want to learn, to make you excited, to make you actually physically smell, see, taste something different, and then hopefully go off and continue that learning somewhere else. You've certainly made me realise the act of curation also holds a mirror up to those who are viewing the exhibition. You know, that Mm. colour pink is a great example about uh, the understandings or misunderstandings of the participants as the viewer in this exhibition. What are the other interesting items for you in this collection, the objects that change the most depending on the angle with which the viewer applies the, uh, the view with? There's one particular object which I love, and it's this tiny little porcelain piece of a screaming face. So really, it's it's smaller than the palm of my hand, and I have little hands. Um, and so that object tells the story of um, the first archaeological dig in Australia that looked at Australian objects. Normally, archaeologists were trained by sending them off to Syria and Egypt and and. Instead, this was the first archaeological dig about this place. It also tells a story about winemaking and business because the pottery shard actually comes from a vessel made at the Irrawang Pottery Works up by Raymond Terrace. And they started making commercial pottery. They were one of the first potters in Australia and they're also a winery. And then you think Irrawang. Well, well, Irrawang's an Aboriginal word. And so really when you look at that early colonial history, a lot of the time they're using Aboriginal place names because they have no other name yet. So we have some surviving Aboriginal words locally that come out of that idea of the colonists naming the place. And the final one is about the science of anger, the neuroscience of anger. So when you become angry and you scream, what happens to your brain? What happens to the chemistry of your body? Now, this is from one tiny little pottery shard that comes out of the ground. And to finish it off, uh, you've got Oasis, Don't Look Back in Anger. And and so, <laughs> Excellent you know, choice. It, it's like, you know, the, the, the 
paths that you can go down. And certainly the problem wasn't finding four stories for each object. It was keeping it at four stories for each object. Yeah, that's my next question because really most of what we see in a museum is just the tip of the iceberg. And we've all heard those stories of just the warehouses that exist either underneath the museum or offside in a warehouse somewhere waiting for the right day for a curator to realise that it has a value or that it becomes a part of the zeitgeist again. Is the job of a curator, and certainly in this instance, the job is to leave, to find out what to choose and to what to put on display and what to leave out? Yeah, it is a big editing job. And so, you know, our collection uh, isn't particularly large. We have 12,500 objects. But to pick 23 out of 12,500 is quite challenging. Uh, And so really it's about, you know, for this one, there was some stuff that came out. There's one of the objects is a brick. Now that sounds terminally boring. Um, But when you actually get into uh, the stories in there uh, with that brick, which came from from a property that was involved in the Mile Creek Massacre, then it becomes quite an interesting thing. But see, I've got I've got pallets of bricks because this area made lots of bricks. So I have some collections within storage that are research collections. You know, if I put every brick that we owned on the floor all at once, you know, I would have no visitors and everyone would go, that's the most boring thing in the world. But it's more about how you pick that object, how you display it, what narratives you tell about it. And, um, you know, I find that that museums have such power and people don't perceive it. We can put something in a case, we shine beautiful lights on it and we put a very lovely printed label beside it and people will assume importance. People will assume significance. And I have people come in and they go, well, that's not an old thing because I used that when I was a kid. And I say, well, it doesn't mean you're old if you're in a museum. It means you're significant. You were important. (laughs) And so that kind of side of things, of if we ascribe significance. We say this is important because we're keeping it and we're using taxpayer dollars to store it. We ascribe significance because we are going to tell the story of it and this is the story we think is important. And I think certainly the thing with um, Australian museums right now and this sort of um, trying to make sense of our place uh, at a time of decolonisation I think it's really, really important that often we open the doors up to people who are not curators and we say, we want you to have access to our collection to tell the stories that you want to tell. And I think that that humility and that stepping back from the power and thinking that we have to know everything and we have to control it, really that's the exciting turning point that Australian museums are going through. And it's a, you know, it's happening around the world, but I really think that Australians are leading the way because almost that culture of humility that comes with that Australian national and Aboriginal psyche, it's, it's, I think it's the most exciting time to be in museums right now. On ABCRN, I'm Andy Park. Julie Baird is my guest in the drawing room. We're talking about museum curation and the exhibition one times four. What was your path to museums, Julie? What was your entry point to this wonderful world that you now occupy? 
Oh my goodness, such a such a bizarre one. I started in university as an English and drama double major. I'm I like the stories. I'm about the stories. Um, luckily, my university at the time made you do courses outside of your specialization. So I had to do geology and biochemistry, and I also had to do history and social sciences. And really, all of a sudden, I discovered that the real stories were the most exciting ones. They were the narratives that I got excited about. So I swapped into history and then I went, oh, my God, what have I done? So, you know, like I I, I knew I'd married young and, and had a child very young and I knew that I didn't feel like I had the time for an academic career. And I knew that what was really important to me was telling stories. So I started volunteering at a local museum where I lived in in Canada at the time and just sort of fell into the joy of of that creative process the the combination of of creating with a in a framework you know you you've got certain objects you've got certain cases and how do you tell a story and then I just took every ridiculous job I could find that was always crazy and risky um, until I find myself now as director of Newcastle Museum and vice president of the Museums and Galleries Association for Australia. And I think it's because I did that risky, out there, uh, crazy stuff. I'm a, I'm an old punk rocker. I should not be a museum director. <laughs> in fact, um, you used to uh, be a promoter of punk rock bands in Canada. Do you think that there is a bit of a punk ethos to the work uh, you do today, that preparedness to challenge the status quo, which punk is eminently qualified to challenge? I I do, and, and we do call ourselves a pretty punk rock museum. Um, and, and I think it's that idea that you... Um, you create community, you create what you think uh, is important, and then you allow other people in. And so for me, that that idea of that, you know, being a 15-year-old lugging sound gear and putting on punk bands uh, who had something to say is basically exactly the same as what I do now as a 54-year-old museum director. Um, and that idea of, of openness to other ideas. So, you know, like we we currently have a theatre show that's in the museum for a week at the same time as we've got a community-curated uh, art exhibition by a non-binary curator at the same time as I've got skateboarders, at the same time as I've got cruise ships and 60-year-olds coming who have a, have a passion for their family history. And it's that idea of... Um, allowing space and allowing humility and access that I think, you know, from my perspective, I think it's quite normal because that's what I've always done. But I just did an interview with the International Congress of Museums and they think it's quite radical because not a lot of people are doing it. Of course, I mean, you've said or you've hinted at this the whole way through our chat here, the idea that curation has changed certainly during the time that you've been in the industry words like humility or openness uh even deference are are not the industry that you entered when you started curation and working in museums in canada no and and it's funny because um as someone who's been saying this for 31 years and was the, you know, annoying rat bag in the corner, um, it's really interesting to see how the industry 
is changing and is growing and how we are actually rewarding risk and humility. So when, you know, I was recently at the National Conference in Perth and the people presenting papers and the award winners for exhibition work were the ones that had the most open relationships with community, were the ones that were not saying, look at us, I know everything about spark plugs, I am the king of spark plugs and this is, you know, you are going to learn what I'm, I'm going to give you. That level of openness, you know, you see it all across Australia uh, and, and certainly, you know, this year's national award winner, uh, Unsettled in, at the Australian Museum in Sydney, certainly is a prime case along with One Times Four that the industry is now recognising that challenging the norms and opening institutions up and being non-biased is is really the way of the future because if we don't do that, we lose relevance. So is that a natural consequence, if you like, of the Western tradition of museum uh, curation in that, I mean, in one perspective now, it could be said that the, you know, museums and curators are so self-aware of the community's judgment as a reparation for the practices of the past. Would you agree? Yes, I would agree. And it's something that certainly, you know, with a with an awful lot of institutions, there's probably a element of, of guilt and, and of, of what the practices that have happened in the past. And I think that certainly, you know, we we are very self-aware as an industry. We do an awful lot of evaluation. We, we know um, more about our visitors and what they care about and what they think than we did in the past. And I think that there's also a change in management in museums across um, Australia as well. So you're seeing a lot more of outsider voices. You're seeing a lot more um, less traditional paths into museums than than once happened. And I think that that, that refreshing uh, sort of blast of, of difference through the Australian museum industry is leading to, you know, what I think is some of the world's best exhibitions happening right now. We're leading the way and, and you know, places like Canada uh, and America and England are, are following. So if this idea of levelling up the, maybe you could call it power imbalances between the museum and its visitors is happening today, that is today's challenge, what do you think tomorrow's challenge for museums will be to stay relevant, to stay part of the community, but to also challenge the community at the same time? Oh, tomorrow. <laughs> I was about to say, oh, no, now I'm thinking about all the challenges of tomorrow. I think the biggest challenge right now is um, moving into that post-COVID world of connection. So, you know, we've gone through two years of uh, a variety of lockdowns where all of a sudden um, that idea of uh, technological answers were at people's hands. Museums can never keep up with the technological advances that you find in gaming because we just don't have the resources and the time and the money. So so really, I think the challenge for museums in the future will be 
to honour the real. So, you know, yes, technology, yes, trying to, to do different and innovative things, but museums are the, one of the last places that you can touch real things, that you can touch real things in a group. And it's about getting people to reconnect and to be comfortable challenging their own realities because as society uh, becomes more and more about, um, you know, Facebook algorithms and showing you what you want, it's getting people to connect with strangers in a public space for something real that might be difficult. Well, Julie, it's a fantastic exhibition and I've so enjoyed our chat tonight here in the drawing room. Thank you so much for your time. No worries. Thank you. Julie Baird has been my guest in the drawing room. Julie is the director of the Newcastle Museum and the one times four exhibition is on at the Yarra Rangers Regional Museum until September 11. And you can find it online at onetimes4.com.au. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.